Welcome to Talent Savvy, the podcast that inspires you on all things talent. I'm your co-host, Bas van der Hater, and joining me is my co-host, Juana Jutlikesko from Germany. Welcome, Juana. So let's dive right in. People know who've listened to us earlier, know who you are, know your backgrounds. What's your news of the week? I think this news is not a good one. <laughs> I was fairly surprised to see that in the current time when we talk about worker shortage and a lot of talent missing in key areas and a lot of organizations running after building bigger teams in a variety of places, Kellogg has decided to replace 1,400 people who were striking rightfully since October over conditions of work. I think when the whole pandemic striked, we really moved into a space where everybody had to work overtime, do a lot of things to, to cover the supply chain and to make sure they ensure quality for customers. But Kellogg then, then they kept the, the conditions. And when the workers said, hey, this is way too much, working seven, seven times a week, seven days a week, and really not having breaks and really needing to take, I think they said, one day off after a hundred consecutive work days. That's not a thing to do in the current, <laughs> well, anywhere, right? Um, yeah, now they decided to, to replace all these people and uh, not after a lot of negotiation. And we've seen more and more uh, groups of workers striking. So I'm very curious what will happen with the other companies who are facing the same. Will they take Kellogg's paths or will they actually become, I don't know, human, first of all, and then more thoughtful and more critical about the workforce yeah very very interesting i I totally agree with you it's i read it i'm i'm actually not even sure if the working conditions were much better before the pandemic maybe apparently they've been working also more than the eight hours a week uh or a day um for ages yeah never having weekends off and now they want they they were offered a three percent wage increase which if I read the news stories right, still doesn't give them livable wages. Mm-hmm. I'm just really curious to if they realize, can we replace those people? And at what cost will they replace them? Because the one thing I've been noticing is especially, and, uh, and this is more your area of expertise in the tech world, they've actually now had pre-year evaluations, bonuses, Mm -hmm. and wage increases in order to keep people. Now, I know there's a big divide between well-educated and easier replaceable people, so to say, but it's not that big. So I'm really curious if how hard this is going to backfire, because from my standpoint, it's going to backfire. But to be honest, I, I would expect a huge scandal, and it's not really. I think in Europe, if you would see the same thing, it would be a very different conversation. Yeah, well, we, we actually have laws which prohibit you from firing somebody who's on strike. Indeed. Well, we'll see how it evolves. How about you, Bas? How, yeah, what's your news? So my news of the week comes from the Netherlands, and it's about a temp agency called Young Capital, which is um, about young people, mainly students. And they won an award this year, this week, called Recruitment Tech Award. And they won it for a business case, which is, I think, just amazing. Um, They needed to recruit 1,000 people for track and trace early in the pandemic. 
what they did was they had a robot, a digital robot, call 7,000 people in their database who had registered to be interested in temporary work before uh, time, basically doing the pre-screening on the hard criteria, so the, the kick-out criteria, just asking them, would you be interested for the job, which is, of course, very important. Were they at least 80 years of age, which actually surprises me that it isn't in their database, but apparently not, they didn't register age that well. Were they able to come to the days they were supposed to be trained and did they have a suitable laptop themselves? Mm-hmm. Um, they calculated that calling 7,000 people with these questions by recruiters would have cost them 400 hours. The mm-hmm. robot did it in four hours. Mm-hmm. And now the recruiters were able to call only those people who basically were suitable and interested in the job mm-hmm. and do the intake on psychometrics. Do you do we believe based on a few questions, you know, the phone screen, that you'll be able to do this job well? So do we invite you to come to the training days and hire you? And I got to admit, I've never been a fan of robot calling, but this kind of does sound as a really great robot call. And uh, I got to tell you, they send a text uh, message before calling, like Mm -hmm. you will be called by a robot today about a new opportunity. And they hired over a thousand people in uh, just a few weeks time to do the entire track and trace for the Dutch government early in the pandemic. For me, this is an amazing case study. And that's my news of the week. Really? I mean, I, now I need to check them out, to be honest, because we were just having this conversation at, uh, at work at Wafer uh, last week. We were interviewing a candidate for our volume roles, and she was saying that she's handling EU and EMEA. And when she would post the role in EU, she would need to source, right? Like there was no no potential, <laughs> like proactive application, but in Egypt, Libya, Lebanon, and so on, they would get like, like I think she said like 4,000 applicants per week. I don't remember exactly the role, but like a, a junior mid-level corporate. And they had to find a similar solution. And I think, yeah, we will see more of this for sure. Yeah, well, uh, th- this reminds me of uh, a couple of years ago at an event, I actually talked to a company in Russia and one of their clients was was PepsiCo, and they had a problem getting too many truck drivers to apply if they offered. But apparently in Russia, you don't apply by sending a resume because most people, uh, especially truck drivers, don't have a computer. Yeah. So you phone in in order to say that you're interested in the job, and they would get up to 6,000 phone calls on the day they posted a truck driver job. So they also had a robot uh, um, doing the pre-screening, and they basically ask like three or four standardized questions. And one of them is, uh, how long have you had your driver's license? Because that really correlated a lot with how many accidents are you going to make? And they saved thousands of man hours on exactly a robot, which was years ago. And we was I, I actually tested the robot, which was not quality at that point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for inbound, this could work as well. But I love the fact that we now have a working outbound case. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking with everybody in your ATS who already applied at some point, who showed interest in your organization, would it be possible to re-engage with some of them Mm. through this method? True. 
true. They become forever there, forever yours. <laughs> so before we get on to our topic, talking about selection today, a quick word from our sponsor. European. Talent. Intelligence. What does it mean? Imagine a world where it's easier for you to find and know your target group. Where it's easier to recruit and attract the talent you need from a European talent pool. Every year, thousands of corporate recruiters, HR departments and intermediaries rely on Intelligence Group to make that dream a reality. Intelligence Group is the European market leader in recruitment talent intelligence. With innovative dashboards and tailor-made research in 28 European countries. It is our job to empower you as a state-of-the-art, data-driven recruitment business partner. Recruiting with data is great. Recruiting with Intelligence Group is better. Learn more about our services at intelligence-group.nl Intelligence Group, market leader in European talent intelligence. So we're back talking about selection in the broadest terms possible. We'll probably be revisiting this topic a lot of times. And I recently was asked, when is it time to reevaluate your selection process? And my answer is, first of all, right now, of course, but basically always every couple of years. Mm -hmm. So I want to start with a statement that I've actually been revising for the past few years. I used to be very much against this, and now I'm very much for it. So here's my statement. A test at a very early stage, maybe even before asking for a resume, actually increases the candidate experience. And let me explain why I think this, and then I'll be very interested in your uh, views on this one. One of the downsides in the candidate experience is usually the rejection, and it's very generic. There were better candidates, there were better this, there were better that. And by using a standardized test, by you and whether it's job specific or culture specific or values specific, you're actually able to so much better phrase the reason you're not continuing with a candidate that it increases the candidate experience a lot. I've seen situations where somebody literally got a report for a contact center job. I mean, the most basic of customer service jobs. And they said like, okay, here's the reason we're not continuing with you. These are the levels we are expecting for these kind of traits. That's where you score. Hence, we can't continue with you. Fully automated. And this man actually replied, which was interesting, saying this was the most humane rejection he had ever had. And he now understood why he was unfit for the job and why he failed so many times at previous employers. Mm -hmm. And it was probably the very first rejection this man had ever got when no human actually looked at his data because it was fully automated. And thinking of that, I'm I'm changing my opinion that we need to start with the human and the interviews. Mm -hmm. We need to start with some form of test mm -hmm. so we can actually do the very first shift and reject people based on the re based with a reason. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Before I tell you what I think, I'm very curious how, because it's a big shift, right? You're going 
180 from an era where you were like, no, we should put the human first. We should create the human touch, the human interaction. And now you're strong on your statement saying that, no, we should definitely switch it around. What, if you remember, if you have a memory of like, when did it start switching? Like you've been doing this for a very long time, assessment, training, consultancy, really you're up to date, maybe even more than I am. So where where is the breaking point for you? Well, it has to do with the fact that a CV isn't human, isn't that human either. Mm. I mean, we have a human looking at the CV, which is a human thinking, oh, she's from Romania, so she's probably not that good. Or, <laughs> no, but... I mean, I know, I know, it's, I know, I it's know. all kinds of biases, yeah. but the other way around as well. I mean, oh, she worked at Facebook, so she must be an awesome recruiter. Yeah, um, sure. We recently saw this, this person who applied with a resume and she literally only changed the company she worked for. She changed them to Twitter, Facebook and uh, Google from her unknown uh, IT firms, same jobs. And all of a sudden, everybody invited this person. I mean, so is it is it humane to reject people not based on their skills, but based on the fact that they got lucky at some point that some big company hired them? And uh, we're not interacting with people in the first stage either. I mean, we're we asking them to send a resume and a, a cover letter and rejecting them based on human interpretation of that. And the other part, which... M- really uh, changed my thinking. Apparently, the average application with a resume and a cover letter still takes a person about 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. The average assessment takes people between 30 and 45 minutes. It could be a little longer, but it isn't even that much longer because writing a really well-written resume fitting to the specific job, which a lot of people do, apparently takes people between half an hour and an hour as well. I can actually tell you it took my ex on average a week, but that's a different story. (laughs) So we're not asking for more investment, time investment. And that's one of the main reasons I was against it. Like, can you really ask somebody to take 45 minutes to apply? Mm. And then I was like, wait a moment, they're already doing that, polishing up their resume. Unless they do fast apply on LinkedIn, right? So no plug in here, but... (laughs) I see, I see. So I kind of, I understand, right? I think it makes sense. And it's a very popular approach and it would probably become even more popular around like dissing the CV, but you need to replace it with something for sure. So that will make sense, but it's still such a controversial statement, I feel. And even I was just having a one-on-one earlier with somebody in the team is like, I cannot do a half an hour interview. I need 45. I need one hour. I need to learn about this person to know what I can offer him or her to make the best of this experience. So I know for sure that a lot of recruiters in the industry, they personally feel their experience or their their value is not just to kind of push people through a funnel, but to bring the best in those conversations. And I think that's one way of looking at it. And I I, th- I think we're always debating what do we optimize for? Do we optimize for time, like velocity, for the candidate, for the process, for the hiring managers, for the experience? Am I having, I don't know, I'm, am I learning something? Am I feeling valued? Am I feeling seen, right? I think the the test first a lot of the times makes people feel like they're just another person versus a, a, an interaction. 
but there are so many, I think, pros and cons on both sides. And I think you're, you're very much correct. The bias will always, the bias will always be there. I think we're trying all to mitigate and be aware. We're also trying to build tests that are not biased, which we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later. But your statement is so controversial. I know for a fact that so many recruiters would be like, nope. <laughs> No, I, I know. All right, then let me give you another idea because it doesn't have to be, of course, a job fit test. Mm-hmm. It could also be a value fit test. Mm-hmm. So do you fit with the values of the company? Now, a value fit test could be as simple as nine questions, probably. That's that's the least I usually go to. Three values tested with three situational judgments, mm-hmm. which could be the first step instead of a resume, then you at least know if somebody has some connection with your corporate values. It isn't a lot of time. And the thing which, the reason I don't understand, or I do understand why it's controversial, I just disagree with the fact that it should be, is we're wasting so much time on people, talking to people for 45 minutes, an hour, which are just unsuitable based on things we could have measured up front, whether it be the technical skills or whether it be a value fit with the company. That is true. That is true. I, I, I'm with you there. So I actually think it will increase the candidate experience because, first of all, we're not wasting the candidate's time. If you're, and, and the one thing you don't want is what I would call an abusive relationship sitting at a company, which might be an awesome company, just not for you. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've had my experiences with working for companies, which basically brought me to the brink of depression. And I had a lot of colleagues who have been there for 20, 25 years, who are still happy there mm-hmm. because they created what I would consider a very toxic culture, but they loved it. I mean, they thrived in being as toxic as they were. So I'm not saying it's a terrible company, or I am saying it, but (laughs) it's mainly a terrible company for me. I mean, you've worked at Facebook. There are people who consider Facebook heaven, and there are people who will consider working at Facebook hell, at least if I read the reviews. (laughs) Shouldn't you be only talking to the people who are at least coming close to thinking it's at least acceptable or heaven. Yeah, we'll try there. But what do you think makes makes things this the way they are? Like we are not seeing a massive adoption of test first. I, I feel. I mean, I'm not sure how what you see, but this is a bit my take. Do you think that will change? Do you think we're in the process of getting there? Do you think it's going to still be a very small group of companies that adopt test first? Like what influences? What gives companies the confidence to say? Yeah, we're going to switch. I'm seeing it increase a lot. And mainly from, interestingly enough, a lot of governments, because they want to be more inclusive. Because they have found that a resume up front tends to have unconscious bias in the very first part of the selection. And I'm seeing those cases. But then again, it's my business to consult on this. Mm -hmm. So, uh, of course, I'm seeing it increased because else I wouldn't be consulting on it. I'm also seeing companies with a really strong employer brand, which could be a very niche employer brand. Like we have an electric vehicle manufacturer here in the Netherlands, which is 
seeing insane amounts of people applying to really technical jobs from all over the world. And they're wondering like, okay, we know India has awesome technicians and we know India has terrible technicians, just like every country. Now, how are we going to check before we start rejecting anybody what their quality is and whether they'd be able and willing to work at a company in the Netherlands? We are allowed to get them in on visas because there are so few of these people in the Netherlands, yet uh, we only want to relocate people because it's really costly if they're really good. Mm-hmm. So we need to have a check at the very first stage. So I'm seeing it increase. I'm seeing it increase because of the call for more diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing it increase in governments in part because of the people retiring from certain jobs. And apparently we have, have a few jobs where the average age in the entire job is over 60 now. Sort mm-hmm. of like, we can't even hire experienced young recruits because apparently we haven't <laughs> trained anybody for the past decades. So let's now hire people with the necessary skills and teach them on the job. So yeah, I'm seeing it increase, but I'm, I would love to see it increase even more. I bet it will. To be honest, I bet it will. A lot of organizations are seeing the value. I think technology is helping a lot, but also our mindset is shifting from, I need to meet in person. Like now we're working all remote. We do everything through a screen, most of it. (laughs) So I think why not this part as well? I think most of us will, will get used to it and will accept it as the new normal. And I think, like I said, it gives us an opportunity to actually increase the candidate experience. But that that I'm still curious. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is your statement on the topic of selection? Bas, I'll give you my statement and we'll probably carry on in the same tone around inclusion, diversity, equity. My statement is, if you want a genuine, inclusive recruitment process, you need to offer multiple types of assessments. And I'll dive a bit deeper there because... It's such a fascinating problem. As we were talking earlier, what do you want to optimize for? And it's becoming clearer and clearer by the the fact that if your workforce is diverse and it's learning to work together and create value from this diversity, your products are more innovative. You make more money as an organization. People are happier to work and learn from a diverse slate of colleagues. And in in general, communities thrive, right? So I like to believe, I know this is not true, but I would like to believe that all organizations are optimizing for diversity and inclusion. But when it comes to especially technical assessment or assessments that test more technical skills, we usually go to one, one for all, right? We we try to kind of do this, as you said, standard, standard type of test that captures exactly the same things about exactly the same people in exactly the same shape. And through the experience I've had, and I think there's more and more research coming from this, this doesn't actually work for a lot of people. If you look specifically at engineering, you would have had launched maybe the trend by Google 10, 15 years ago with a certain type of technical assessment, especially to rule out developers and people who just 
code, basically. It became very fast, very clear that people who didn't study in certain universities or certain like specific custom, uh, computer science, or they didn't actually have the experience of taking even their school tests in the same way, one, they would most of the time fail initially. So they would have to kind of learn how to do the test in order to pass the test. <laughs> and second, there is more and more evidence that underrepresented categories, and it starts, let's say, with women in technology, but then it it, it covers every other underrepresented category in a, a bunch of, let's say, types of jobs. Um, there is a certain problem when it comes to tests under uh, a timer, right? And this, again, it raises a lot of questions. Am I excluding people that would be brilliant here? Am I excluding people that would add a lot of value? Are we testing for what people can do or are we testing for what they can't do? Um, so it was a long, a bit of a longer rant there, but ultimately it would be very interesting for us to shift a little bit this this thinking around what are we testing for? And I don't know what's your experience with that. And if you've ever seen an organization offering a battery of tests, testing the same thing, but in a different way so that we give people the opportunity. Well, I, I think it's, it's a fascinating uh, statement. The first thing, because I'm an expert on a lot of tests, just not a technical test. So the first thing I hear when you say you need experience with the test um, to be able to do the test well means that it's a crap test. Because the one thing scientifically proven tests prove is that there's almost no learning curve in doing the test. That's at least most of the tests I work with. There is no learning curve. So you're basically not testing what you should be testing. Mm -hmm. The second part, which you said, is testing under time pressure. It really depends if time pressure is part of the job. Now, I love, I know a few technical tests, which I saw demos from, and they also tested how fast you would come up with a solution. Is that time pressure? Yes, but that's also work simulation, because let's be very honest. If you are able to find a bug in a minute or you're able to find a bug in a day, there's a big difference in how good you will be perceived being at your job if your job is bug fixing. I also know that, interestingly enough, in America, and Malcolm Gladwell did an awesome podcast in his revisionist history series on this, um, they went in three parts through the entire thing of the SATs, which is basically, can you get into a law school? And what they said is uh, they only go for time pressure. That's basically what, you know, testing knowledge under pressure. The thing is that judges and also lawyers, but judges don't work that much under time pressure because mm -hmm. they don't have an hour to think of a sentence or an argument. They have days and days and days. Mm -hmm. So you're just testing the wrong thing if it doesn't, if time doesn't matter. I do believe that. For developers, time might matter. The question is, how do you calculate for the time pressure? But mm -hmm. that's a different mm -hmm. thing. So if your tests are indeed different yet have the same result, I know that some companies love pair programming. I know others love a simple coding tests. I know others want to just see your repository on GitHub, what you built before. If those give different results, mm -hmm. I think it's awesome if you could offer people different ways of getting tested, which best suits them. 
I would, on the other hand, argue that a really great test always measures only what it should be measuring. And you're right. The other question you ask is, are we looking for what people can do or are we looking for what people can't do? And to be honest, that also depends on the job. Mm -hmm. So I know, for example, air traffic controllers, both in my country as well as yours, because I know they're actually using the same test. Mm -hmm. Because it's so successful and they're looking for what people can do, but also for what people can't do. Mm -hmm. For example, an air traffic controller needs to be extremely stress resilient because basically your entire job is about when things go wrong and you shouldn't be stressed out at that point. So yes, they're testing. If you aren't stress resilient, you need to be leaving because you won't be able to do the job. So it also, again, depends on the job. Can you work around it? And interestingly enough, I know that the same technology is now used for doctors in a hospital mm -hmm. where they're screening on what can you do, but also looking at what can't you do and can we support you in that? So mm -hmm. they're now lowering actual uh, uh, physicians dropping out of the training program because they're saying, okay, based on your brain profile, you're not good at planning. So we're just going to give you a planning assistant. You know, yeah. you're, you're going to be a surgeon, apparently scheduling surgery and, and planning that all that stuff. That's not your forte. So, yeah. but you might have awesome view because actually surgery is about having really great eyesight, you know, because hand, eye hand coordination, sure. Eye hand coordination. Yeah. Well, that, that's an interesting, another factor. Do, do you actually know that uh, when the Wii came out, you know, the Nintendo Wii? Yeah that they found out that doctors who had the Nintendo Wii and were playing with it actually made less surgical mistakes, significantly <laughs> less surgical mistakes because of their increased eye-hand coordination. Yeah. Anyway, but I love the fact that you are saying to be truly inclusive, you might need multiple selection processes at certain points which measure the same uh, qualities. It would be interesting, right? And what I'm thinking as well from a candidate experience, let's say I'm a business analyst and I, I apply to 10 organizations and I have five processes. I would probably have five different ways of being tested for my skills. So as a candidate, I'm already experiencing these things and I will probably make some decisions based on my, yeah, my assessment of the assessment. <laughs> what actually brought my skills to light so yeah it would be it would be really interesting i know it's a, a very very hard to scale or very difficult to even test in a short amount of time so i think organizations who have the luxury to to test this internally or uh, employ consultants or really have like we have a couple of organizations out there who are now doing external assessment like expert so I think they treat organizations like guinea pigs. So they propose a batch to this organization, another batch to this organization, and then they kind of also decide what actually makes more sense from from a from a market perspective. So yeah, quite interesting. I will, I'm very keen to see how this world evolves, actually. Me too. And let's wrap up and I'll end with a prediction on this. And you can have either a prediction or a takeaway. My prediction is that in between five to 10 years, the companies won't be offering the tests, but the candidates will own their own data to tests and will simply be offering their personality or their quality data based on some tests, which they already did 
which they probably stored in a blockchain somewhere and saying, okay, this is my personality. These are my work preferences. These are my coding skills, whatever you're asking. Here's just my data. Now put your own algorithm on top of it. I love that. And I learned so much today. Thank you. So on that note, I hope you all listeners also learned things. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Give us feedback. Get in touch. And I hope you enjoyed our show. Thank you. Thank you.